Song of Songs 8, 5 to 14. She, who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. The hair your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Others, we have a little sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build her on a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. She, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, and, it's, and the keepers of the fruit, two hundred. He, O you who dwell in the gardens, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. She, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle, or a young stag, on the mountains of spices. Uh, oh, there we're on. All right. Uh, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text uh, that Sarah read for us. Now, uh, you may or may not be aware of this, but one of the ongoing debates about Christmas in popular culture is whether or not the movie Die Hard, starring Bruce Willis, is or is not a Christmas movie. Now, if you're not familiar with the plot of Die Hard, or you're like, I've seen so many Die Hards, I cannot distinguish between them in my mind, the simple plot line of Die Hard 1, or just simply known as Die Hard, is that Bruce Willis, NYPD detective, he goes to a Christmas Eve party to try to win back, try to, try to get back with his estranged partner who'd been held hostage with all these other people. And of course, because it's Bruce Willis, uh, there, there's terrorists, there's explosions, you know, the day is saved in various kinds of ways. So, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Well, on the against side, Die Hard seems to possess zero Christmas themes, has nothing to do with Jesus, shepherds, you know, it's full of terrorists, you know, guns and action. But on the for side, it takes place on Christmas Eve, and therefore it's a Christmas adjacent. Well, what if I told you I could summarize the plot line of Die Hard in this way? In Die Hard, a man goes through all kinds of tragedy, difficulty, suffering, and nearly dies to rescue his beloved. He fights evil powers, he overcomes obstacles, and in the end, he brings salvation, freedom, to the one he loves, which means you know, they walk out of the high rise together. See, if you leave aside the Christmas Eve setting just for a moment, uh, let me suggest that the themes I've just listed are the themes of Christmas. A man coming to bring rescue to his beloved, salvation being offered to those uh, in captivity, an army of evil forces arrayed against a hero? It sounds a lot like Christmas to me. See, we are simultaneously arriving at the end of Song of Songs and the Sunday before Christmas, and maybe you were wondering to yourself, how is he going to take a text that's instructing particularly young people, but really all of us, about the possibilities, the pleasures of romance and marriage, and, and line that up, or, or, or somehow you know, contrast that with the coming of Jesus Christ? Well, I think it can work. 
And the reason it can work is because what we have at the end of Song of Songs, what, what Sarah read for us, is not a conversation between two lovers. It's not one of those hazy dream sequences that we've been through. It's, it's a meditation on the nature of love itself. And it's the woman, nearly, uh, she speaks nearly the whole time using just a few words, but giving us some powerful instructions about what love is, what it does. And I think the more we understand love, the more we will understand Christmas. The most fam- famous verse in all the Bible, John 3:16, tells us, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. See, what John tells us is at the heart of Christmas is love. And what we've learned in the past number of weeks at the heart of Song of Songs is love. And maybe, you know, love's at the heart of Die Hard as well. But that's a conversation for a different day. But as we investigate the words of this woman who is beloved and who loves in return, I think we'll understand more and more of what Christmas is about as well. Two parts to today, if you're following along. Part one, we'll talk about the nature of love. And then part two, we'll speak about the love song that does not end. Verse five begins with a question we've heard before. Back in chapter three, the woman is looking out her window. She's looking off towards the desert and, and, and she sees her beloved coming towards her and she, she's, she sees this dust cloud and, and, and we learn later he has this whole entourage. There, there's soldiers and stuff like that. It's a big kerfuffle. But in chapter three, she's waiting in one place, waiting for him to arrive for what turns out to be their wedding. But in chapter eight, An unidentified voice asks, who is coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? Which means the woman's not waiting for the man, but they're together, they're united. She's sort of leaning on him or they're leaning on each other as they come in from the wild places. And the woman begins to reminisce about the early days of their romance when she awakened him. It was under an apple tree. It's it's unlikely, by the way, that this man's mother labored under that apple tree. It just probably means something like that. The apple tree she's thinking of was on the family property. But as she reminisces about love and, and romance and desire, she gives us two verses, 11 lines of kind of gold about the nature of love. And that's what I want to focus on. Because in my personal opinion, outside of 1 Corinthians 13, I think this is the best description of what love is in all the scriptures. And she offers us a series of images, a series of of metaphors, ways to understand love, four of them. Let's look at them in in some detail. First image, she says, set me as a seal upon your heart and a seal upon your arm. What kind of seal does she refer to? Not the the circus ones or whatever, but a seal was either a piece of metal or a piece of wood that you'd press into uh, warm wax or sometimes you'd roll it into warm wax depending on what kind of seal it was. But it would prove an identity because on a seal was a, a coat of arms or some sort of family marking. It, it symbolized a person. It symbolized a family. And if you were a person in the ancient Near East of reasonable means, you'd have a seal and you'd use it to mark your letters or correspondence or agreements, you know. It was ancient proof of identity. If you were a criminal back in those days and you wanted to steal someone's identity, you didn't, you, you didn't swipe their passport or their driver's license, their credit cards. I mean, they didn't have any of those things. You'd steal their seal. Because if you had their seal, you could forge letters in their name. You could perform all kinds of mischief. Made a seal among a person's most prized possessions. You know, sometimes kings had like a ring and they'd use a ring as a seal. So what's she saying to her beloved? She wants to be a seal on his heart, a seal on his arm. She's saying she wants to be intrinsic to his being. She wants to be inextricable from him. She wants to be embedded with him so that you couldn't see him without seeing her. That he is her identity and she is his. This dual reference to heart and arm, it very likely refers to the inner and outer parts of a person. 
to their thoughts and their actions. So she's saying, I don't just want to be part of his external life. I want to be part of his internal life, the thoughts, the dreams. And in addition, you know, once a letter, once a piece of correspondence was sealed, it could only be opened by the intended recipient, except in, you know, cases of extreme emergency or whatever. And so a seal also conveys this sense of uh, enduring, unbreakable love. You know, our modern wedding vows capture some of the sense of what she tells us love is made of. If you've been to a wedding, you know, when a bride promises her groom, for richer or poorer, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, you know, all those things till death do us part, what she's saying is, I'm setting you, I'm setting my beloved as a seal upon my heart and my arm. There's nothing that, 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 that's going to come between us. Good things, bad things, nothing's going to separate us. We're united, we're, we're together until death. So this morning, if you are a person who's dating and you're wondering to yourself, am I ready to be married? And maybe in particular, am I ready to be married to this person and not another? Then you ought to ask yourself from verse six, am I inextricably bound up with them? Am I ready for that? Am I ready for their life to be enmeshed with mine and, and, and mine with theirs? See, if you can say yes to that question in a serious and thoughtful way, it's a sign that your love has reached marriage levels. This is the first image, a seal. Second image is a comparison between love and death. She says love is as strong as death. Let's think about death for a few minutes. Lovely topic for this nice winter day. You know, notwithstanding medical interventions uh, when a heartbeat has ceased, when a, a person is pronounced dead, when all biological function, all brain function has ceased, that, that's a one-way experience. You, you don't come back from that. If you think about it, death is very exclusive. You can't be dead and also be something else. You're, you're, just, you're just dead. Death is unyielding. Can't be pushed off forever. Death is relentless. It has this slow and steady march. It continues unabated. Death cannot be bought off. It takes no bribes. You can be as rich as you want. There's no ultimate escape from death. See, though it seems kind of morbid to us, death is the only thing we have comparable to love in terms of its strength. See, as the woman was kind of searching around for something, what can I stack up against love for its sheer power? All she could find was death. Because love, in the same way, when it's exclusive, it's unyielding, it's, it's relentless, it cannot be bought off. Third image. She says, love's jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Now, this sounds like an unusual one. We don't think of love as jealous, so we often think of it. Jealousy, being jealous, tends to have negative connotations because it, it, what it normally means is it's a refusal to share what ought to be shared, right? And all kinds of things pop to mind when we think of things that should be shared. You know, toddlers with their blocks, popcorn at the movies, food at the hungry, you know, snow shoveling duties or whatever. Uh, jealousy, a refusal to share in such situations, well, that's, that's wrong and rightly so. But also, if you think about it a little bit longer, I think you'll agree with me that there are other things that ought not be shared. You know, COVID, you know, for example, you know, maybe, maybe too soon. We, we don't, we, we're trying not to share that. That's the whole point. Uh, children, also not to be shared. Like if one of your friends comes to you one day, if you have children and asks you, hey, your kid seems great. Like they seem like a lot of fun. Uh, why don't we share raising them? Now, after a pandemic, parents are like, actually, I'm kind of interested, you know, in, in, in that possibility. But normally, we, we don't share our kids, you know, we just, we just want a nap or whatever. Kids aren't things that, that we share. And in the case of the Song of Songs, really in the case of all of the scriptures, neither are spouses. They're not to be shared. Spouses should be rightly jealous for their beloved. 
Now, of course, your partner, they can have friends, they can have hobbies that don't include you, but like the sexual part of the relationship, the, the intimacy, that's unshared. That's not, it's not sort of open for public consumption. And, and she says, it's not a mild jealousy either. The song says the jealousy of love is, is fierce. It's tenacious. You know, death doesn't share. You know, it doesn't, doesn't go halvesies. You can't have a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know you have true love when there's a fierce jealousy to it. Fourth image. She says, love's flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Now, the Hebrew behind this sentence is really tricky. If you go read 10 different translations, uh, they're all going to translate this differently, which makes it kind of hard to explain. But, but the idea here basically is that love is friendship on fire. There's this, there's this danger and a beauty to love, just like that of a fire. And a fire, of course, can set whole, whole uh, you know, forests ablaze, but can also keep you warm at night. Fire can be stared into for hours, it's beautiful, but it can also, and it can form the basis of energy and propulsion and all those kinds of things, but it can ravage and destroy. But she says, love is such a strong flame that the waters cannot quench it. Floods can't drown it. It's inextinguishable. Death does not have the final say. Love cannot be bought, she, told, she tells us. Uh, it, it doesn't yield to economics. Spreadsheet of an actuary. You know, you can't measure it. And, and in fact, she says, love laughs in the face of those who attempt to buy it. Those who try to pay for love are despised. And in fact, it's, it's fairly common to believe that the more love is bought, the more it cheapens it. Trying to pay for love tends to destroy love. So what is love? What does she say? She compares it to a seal, to death, to jealousy, and to a fire. This is unsentimental. So this isn't, this isn't a Hallmark card about love. This is something else. And I would tell you that this is actually how God has been loving his people since the world began. These four words, these are like biblical, biblical literature words. You know, one of the main ways that the Old Testament in particular describes God's love is as a covenant, this holy and serious promise that, that binds two parties together for life. That sounds a lot like a seal. This visible promise of identity, a stamp of guarantee and actually in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul calls the Holy Spirit God's, the seal of God's love towards us. See, God has always been loving his people in serious covenantal ways. God's love is often compared with death or against death. The great hope of God's people through the ages, especially if you go read the Psalms, is that, that God's love is going to persist through death. Just like the grave in, in long ages uh, of rebellion and invasion, God's love towards his people was relentless. It was exclusive. It was unyielding. God's also often called a jealous God. In the same way that a spouse will not share his or her beloved with another, God does not let his people you know, consort and, and go on dates with other gods. He takes it personally. He gets upset. His love was set on a people and he was jealous about it. He wouldn't share it. And of course, God's presence and love was often represented by fire. God literally shows up as fire on a number of occasions. The burning bush with Moses. Top of Mount Sinai when he gives the law. The tongues of fire on the heads of the apostles when the Holy Spirit came. So listen, should you learn to love your spouse with jealous, unyielding, death-defying love? Like, of course you should. But only because this is the way that God has loved you all the way along. It's the way that God has loved his people since time began. The reason you can offer this kind of love to another human is because this is the kind of love that God has shown you. 
And this is the love that came down at Christmas. You know, Christmas, is a, it's a sentimental time of year. We get all soft and gooey about our traditions. You know, candles, childhood memories, lights, whatever, that's fine. But we often lump the child in the manger into the category of sentimentality. And we sort of wander by and pat, you know, metaphorical baby Jesus on the head and say, well, isn't it nice that you came to be with us? And like, it's nice, but the kind of love that moved God to come and save his people was covenantal and unyielding and jealous and passionate. See, gooey niceness, that didn't put Jesus into a human mother's womb. A love as strong as death did. Now, what does this mean on the ground for our relationships? whether you're married or otherwise, friendships, family, whatever. Well, in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells us the love of God, the same love of God we've been talking about today, the love of God has been poured into your heart. Think about that. This intense, unyielding love is not just outside of us, it's inside of us if you've trusted Christ. As you grow and mature in the faith, God's love changes you. It flows out of you towards other people in your life. So on the days when your spouse really annoys you, or your kids drive you up the wall, or a friend deserts you in a time of need, or your family is making you know, dumb or mean comments to you over Christmas dinner, the love of God that's stronger than death is present in your heart to both comfort you and to give you the love to move towards other people. This is the nature of love. Part two, the love song that does not end. Starting in verse eight, the ESV translation lists this section as final advice. Now, if you have the worship guide, it's not printed there because the words final advice are not in the original Hebrew. And frankly, I don't agree. I don't think, it make, I don't think this section makes a lot of sense as final advice because if you look, there isn't any advice given in verses eight through 14. There's not like, oh, here's like three final tips for marriage or whatever. No, no, I, I wanna look at what we do find here and why I think this can be more, uh, more accurately categorized as a never-ending love song. Now first, in verses 8 and 9, uh, the brothers or the family uh, of the woman show up again. Way, way back in chapter 1, think the week after uh, the long weekend in September, I think we did this or something. The, the, the woman told, told us how, how her brothers, how her family had forced her to work outdoors. And it had darkened her skin and she felt less beautiful because of it. That was way back in chapter 1. But, but here the family or the brothers, someone, someone in the family, is speculating, oh, how are we going to find a marriage match for the younger sister who, you know, hasn't reached puberty yet? The kind of a blunt description of that. They wonder, well, is she more like a wall that needs battlements of silver? Is she more like a door that needs to be enclosed with cedar? Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, it, it can mean any number of things. I think the basic idea is that the family is trying to adorn her in some way so that she'll, she'll get a better husband or make a better match. Maybe, maybe it's references to jewelry or fine clothes or, or whatever so that she can, so she can find a better husband. But what these verses display is a very stereotypical understanding of marriage and love in more traditional cultures. And maybe some of you grew up there or you have, you have ancestors from there, but marriage is about finding a match. It's about advancing the, the family interests. Love, romance, you know, not, not as important. This is, how, this is how traditional cultures tend to view marriage. But if you look at verse 10, the woman speaks and she contrasts that view, bluntly stating, she was a wall. She had passed through puberty into womanhood. She'd found love and peace in the eyes of the only one who mattered, her beloved. What she's telling us is the traditional understanding of marriage isn't quite right because it tends to neglect the role that love plays. 
Now look, on the other side, the modern Western conception of marriage, that you know, love and romance is the only thing that matters, uh, that has all kinds of shortcomings as well, but that's not exactly what they're dealing with here. She follows up her comments with a different example, telling us in verse 11 that King Solomon has vineyards, and he rents them out to tenants for silver. And his vineyards all have a price. If you want a, a vineyard of King Solomon, it's going to cost you a thousand pieces of silver. Now, now what, is, what does that mean? Well, in response, she says she has no price. She's not owned. Remember, she just said love cannot be bought or sold. She says she's giving her vineyard, that's herself, her body, her life, she is giving her vineyard freely to her beloved and is not compelled. In verse 13, we hear the man's voice for the last time in the book telling us that he longs to hear the woman speak. And in verse 14, she speaks She closes a book, again, sort of upsetting maybe traditional gender norms. She gets the last word, and that the last word is an invitation for him, her beloved, to hurry to her and to be with her. And she recalls these familiar images of gazelles and stags and mountains of spices. Sexual allusions, partly, but reminders of the intimacy of marriage. So why do I call this sort of mishmash of stuff the love song that never ends? Well... You probably all know, or maybe many of you know, the children's song that never ends. I'm not going to sing it, lest it be stuck in your heads, you know, for the rest of the day. But, but the reason the, the children's song that never ends, uh, it does not end, is because the last line, it doesn't resolve. But it leads back into the first line. If you, if you quit singing the song that never ends, after the last line, it feels incomplete. And maybe if you're a musician, there's some like fancy word for this phenomenon. But the song doesn't resolve in a normal way. And therefore, you know, on like your, your grade five bus trip, you just sing it for hours because it, you know, it, it, it never ends. Song of Songs ends, but it doesn't resolve. See, there's no happily ever after. There's no conclusion. Horses are not riding off into sunsets. We don't see them grow old together. The love song between these two lovers, it just sort of trails off. It goes on and on, my friends, you know. Well, why would they end the book like that? What's Solomon, who I think wrote this book, what's he doing? Well, an unfinished, unresolved ending, it does two things. At first, it forces you to ponder your place within the story. See, we've said a lot of things in this series about marriage and about love, and what's tricky about a series like this in a sort of a regular church like ours is that there are all kinds of people listening in in many different stages of life. Some of you are older married people. You've been married for a few decades some of you are younger and married, you know, between five and 15 years. You're not, you're not newly married, you're not, you know, under five, but neither are you, you know, multiple decades in. Some of you are newly married, just, you know, a couple years in. Some of you are engaged, some of you are dating people, some of you are divorced or widowed, uh, you know, some of you are too young to date, you know, all, all the little kids in our church. And what the song does is it pushes you to apply wisdom to your life in whatever season you are in. And it's going to look different depending on the season. It's going to look wildly different depending on the season. So do you need to do some work on how you give love to your beloved or how you receive love from them? Does your sexual life need some work? Is your communication and conflict resolution a little bit off? Or are you in a different stage? Are you trying to examine the the quality of your love and wondering, should I marry this person I'm dating? Or are you thinking ahead, you know, what might a potential partner look like or be like? And maybe I just haven't covered your situation. You're some other little niche that we haven't gotten to. The unresolved ending here invites you in. Where do you find yourself? What kind of wisdom do you need for where you are at? 
The second thing the unresolved ending does is it provides a picture of how God loves us. As I said in the, the first section, the description of love at the end of this book is a description of how God has loved his people through history, and specifically in the incarnation, the, the, the Christmas of Jesus Christ. And just like this couple, the love of God goes on and on. And we're in the season we call Advent, and Advent means coming or arriving. And so, yes, we consider the first arrival, the first coming of Jesus, but of course, we're also looking to the second Advent, the future coming of Christ back into the world, which means the love of God is not resolved. <laughs> it has not ended with, with, the, with the birth of Christ, but it continued with the sending of the Holy Spirit. It's being sustained now in the age of the church, and one day it, it will in some ways consummate, uh, you know, kind of resolve in some ways with the second coming of Christ. But even then, into eternity, the love of, of God will not, will not end. The love story of God goes on and on because also as new people are being born, new people and, and children are learning of his love constantly. And even those of us who've been told of his love, we keep returning to the beginning of the song. The Christian life is cyclical. We celebrate the same things year after year at the same time of year because God continually makes them new. Did you know that God is never mentioned by name in the Song of Songs? The closest we get is verse 7 of this passage when he says, loves, or she says, love's flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. That's as close as we get to hearing God's name. And it's even in Hebrew, it's like, kind of like this shortened form. And so perhaps this morning you're tempted to think, aren't you stretching the meaning of the text by speaking about God's love for us instead of just human romantic love? Well, think about it this way. Can anyone actually live out verse 6 and 7? Can two people really be joined together in this way, sealed in heart and arm? Is love really as strong as death? After all, death defeats human love all the time, <laughs> right? When we die, our, our, our love dies or, or, you know, with us. Maybe it's preserved in memory or story, of course, um, but it doesn't endure exactly. You know, water sometimes quenches love. Sometimes money buys love, at least in some forms. Human love cannot live up to its own terms in the Song of Songs. And even in our movies, like Die Hard, where love is idealized and people make heroic sacrifices for love and, it's, and people do ride off into sunsets on horses, it still can't reach these levels. See, what we need is not a love as strong as death. We need a love that's stronger. We don't just need to be sealed for a decade or two or three. We need to be sealed for eternity. What we need is the very flame of the Lord to come and live in us. So that any of us, all of us, single, engaged, married, divorced, whatever you are, that we can all know God's love. The good news is because of Christmas, the love of God has come to live with us. And you can receive it today. Christ can be born anew in your hearts. The almighty flame of God can come to live in you, giving you the knowledge, giving you the experience of the covenantal strong, the jealous love of God for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you, and we are grateful for your love poured out into our hearts through Jesus Christ, that all of us, no matter our marital status, can, can experience it, can live in it, can enjoy it, and then can freely offer it to all the people that we are in relationship with, friends, family, spouses, children, parents, everything. I pray that more and more we'd experience and know your love, that you'd change us by it, you'd help us to believe in it, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.